Some of the most remarkable thinkers, economic thinkers in history, definitely understood to a varying degree that evolution played a role in human economies. This view of life actually does not slot into any current political position. It's not left, right, center, or libertarian. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, where we explore everything you wished you'd learn in Econ 101. In this episode of uh, Pitchfork Economics, we're going to move away from an analysis of the behavior model of neoclassical economics, Homo economicus, and move towards an examination of uh, the system. And, you know, the traditional way of understanding economies uh, for economists is as closed equilibrium mechanistic systems. And we now know with scientific certainty that that's not uh, what characterizes a human social system. Human social systems are actually open, complex, adaptive, and really best understood as ecologies, forms of ecologies, and as such, they are basically evolutionary systems. And that's why uh, in this episode we're focused on evolution, because with respect to human economies, if you don't understand the dynamics of evolution, you really can't understand, uh, you know, how a human economy, certainly a market economy, works. Uh, and that's why uh, today, I am joined by a remarkable person and old friend, uh, the evolutionary biologist David Sloan Wilson, who is the distinguished professor of biological sciences and anthropology at Binghamton University. He's the co-founder of the Evolution Institute and who is the author of a variety of books, including a brand new one called This View of Life. But he is uh, among the world's leading uh, researchers on evolutionary theory, and recently we did a town hall um, teasing out some of the issues in his new book, uh, This View of Life, Completing the Darwinian uh, Revolution. And okay, so here's our discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, golly. Oh, golly. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, it, it occurs to me, David, that, um, well, first of all, thank you all for coming, and we're, thank you for all the work that it's taken to uh, make Town Hall both what it was and what it is. You've clearly crushed it, and it looks, looks so great. It's so exciting to be in this venue. Um, uh, but it, it occurs to me, David, that many people in the audience may be puzzled about why somebody who cares about economics so much, um, and is a capitalist, uh, is in conversation with somebody who cares so much about evolutionary biology and also cares about economics. How, 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 do those, how do these two things intersect? Why do we have so much in common? Well, that's, I mean, economics is uh, from eco, from home, the same root as ecology. And uh, what we're both driving towards and what uh, is the only thing that makes sense is a view of economics which is continuous with a uh, human society, what it makes for there to be a good society, and, uh, and to live in a sustainable relation with the, uh, uh, with the earth. That's economics as it should be. 
Of course, it's not economics as it is. Uh, we all know that. I think that's, uh, that's become painfully obvious to almost everyone. Uh, the real question is, what replaces it? What's the more consilient view of economics? When you think, when you ask the question, what would be the truly general scientific foundation for just about anything? It would be a combination of complexity theory, which covers physical systems in addition to living systems, and evolutionary theory, which covers all living systems, including everything that we associate with humanity. And so that is what it would mean to complete the Darwinian revolution, to take this toolkit, as I put it, to give it a practical cast mm -hmm. that has proven itself in the biological sciences, and then to expand it to include everything associated with the words human, culture, and policy. That is what it means to complete the Darwinian revolution. Yeah, interesting. So I want to I want to um, take a moment and just reflect on uh, you know sort of what my personal transformation. Uh, uh, was like with respect to economics and, and these ma matters because I, I grew up um, as did almost everybody sort of buying the idea that the certainly the, you know that that it was largely correct the way that economists had modeled the the economy as this sort of closed linear mechanistic system and I will never forget and none of it ever really made sense to me, but I didn't think about it that deep, deeply. And then I read my first book on complexity theory, and it was like scales fell from my eyes, because it became very clear that once you understood the system as a complex evolutionary system, everything made sense. It sort of all intuitively fell into place for me. And, and I think that it, for, for from my perspective, obviously I'm not an academic economist or an evolutionary biologist, uh, but I have been an activist for a very long time and have traded in how you change people's minds and change policy and change frames of debate and change narratives. And what, what was really so salient for me was the difference in the metaphors that these different systems of thought represent and how imprisoning that old set of metaphors was, right? That, so if you, if you assume that the economy is uh, essentially a mechanistic equilibrium system, then it will be by definition a system of decreasing returns, where if one thing goes up, another thing goes down, like wages. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, when you raise wages, you kill jobs. Well, that, that, that heuristic is a, is a product of that mechanistic thinking. It's a product of equilibrium th thinking, and it flows inevitably and directly from it. And if you get the world to subscribe to that metaphor and that view, then they will, you know, they'll explain the world in a very particular way. But if you understand the system, as you would describe, as, an, as a complex, adaptive ecology, a system of increasing returns, then saying raising wages will kill jobs would be the moral equivalent of claiming that when plants grow, animals shrink. This is not the way it works, obviously. These things in, in an ecology are in, are, are in a different kind of uh, um, relationship. And you have, you, you talk about the science to narrative chain as one of the, your most important tasks. So can you, can, can you relate to that? 
course, and of course you, you, you said a lot there, in science to narrative chain, uh, science is necessary but not sufficient. There must also be stories, basically. Mm -hmm. Cultures are conveyed through stories, and so you need to have um, strong narratives, and that has to be connected to uh, science in a, um, um, in a uh, responsible way. And uh, I think that uh, my entry into economics uh, started about 10 years ago in your book, The Gardens of Democracy with Eric Liu, was um, something we discovered as it did a, actually a great job of uh, building out the narrative end of the, of the chain, having uh, soaked up a lot of, uh, of this reasoning, this uh, complex systems and, right. and evolutionary reasoning. But I actually want to be clear, all we did was crib from him. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, and then we've been actually interacting, just for the full disclosure, we've been interacting with each other for yeah. uh, 10 years in yeah. a kind of a common cause of replacing one paradigm with another, replacing one paradigm with another, and to set the stage broadly for that uh, first paradigm. Uh, when we think about Darwin and what a great man he was and how insightful he, uh, he was, we also know that he was a, a product of Victorian culture and he could not see through some aspects of his culture. Nobody could. So. So nobody back then, I mean, everyone back then thought that European culture was superior to other cultures, that cultural evolution would take the form of some kind of progressive progression from savagery to civilization. Uh, it was just um, uh, in the bones for Darwin to think that uh, men were superior to women. He never questioned that, and so on. And so in hindsight, we need to, we need to be able to separate the actually what actually follows from the theory from what the Victorians could not see through. And so the question is, what's, what's, what's our culture what, what, that we can't see through? And, and what that is to a remarkable extent is, is individualism, this axiomatic belief that you don't really understand something until you understand it in terms of individuals' actions and motives, that the fundamental unit is the individual, the self-interested individual, and everything, including everything we associate with society, and economics is some product of individual self-interest. Also, that if we let individual self-interest just happen, then somehow, as if steered by an invisible hand, that will work out for the common good. That's the guiding metaphor of laissez-faire um, 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 economics. But it goes beyond that. And if you look very broadly at social history, what you find is, is that individualism was spreading everywhere in the middle of the 20th century. If you go back to the beginning of the 20th century, you get figures such as Emile Durkheim and, 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 and people who really thought of society as the unit. Yeah. Society is something which actually doesn't reduce very well to, to individuals. But then you got this wholesale replacement, including my own field of evolutionary biology. That was the era of the selfish gene of, the, of individual uh, selection. Gordon Oriens is in the audience somewhere, so he was uh, he was um, a major figure back uh, uh, back then in the social sciences. You had something called methodological individualism. You still have it. It's a uh, major concept in yeah. neoclassical economics. So that was Can like you explain methodological individualism just briefly to these folks. It's the, basically that you need to understand everything in terms of the motives and actions of individuals. Right. The, but there are no social facts other than the ones. Right, right. And Homo economicus, the famous Homo economicus, is a version of methodological yeah. individualism. And so, and so uh, the, the new paradigm based on 
complexity and evolution is nothing less than a robust uh, replacement for methodological individualism. I think that's how we see it in its broadest form, and in which we have to see societies as, and nature, both nature and, and human societies, as very complex systems. They're evolving systems. Evolution goes beyond genetic evolution. All of the fast-paced processes going on around us that we call cultural change, and do you know personal change, because each and every one of you is a flexible unit, an evolving unit, and so there's such a thing as your personal evolution in addition to our cultural evolution. And so to think that just about all of this um, reflects evolutionary processes, and evolution can be the problem in addition to the solution, because evolution doesn't make everything nice. Very often evolution results in, in, in behaviors that benefit me, not you, us, not them, short-term, not long-term. And so evolution is taking place all around us, but if we don't manage it, then it takes us where we don't want to go. So many of our problems are actually adaptive in the evolutionary sense of the word. They're getting individuals or groups or various entities. They're succeeding for them, but at the expense of others. And so the large system as a whole is now compromised. And so the only alternative is to become wise managers of evolutionary processes. We must learn how to align these forces of evolution so that they take us where we want to go in terms of our large-scale and long-term societal goals. And if you don't know about evolution, if you're not smart about evolution, we will never get there. Right. Uh, um, it, it, you drew some really fun distinctions between what was adaptive and non-adaptive, non the distinctions between helping your family and nepotism, for instance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, taking care of yourself, that's a good thing. Yeah. Self-dealing, that's a bad thing. Helping out your relatives, that's a good thing. Nepotism is a bad thing. Uh, helping out your friends is a good thing. Cronyism is a bad thing. Almost everything we associate, for example, with corruption is actually a, people obeying the dictates of a smaller social unit, the moral dictates. There's very little that's actually true individual selfishness. Most pathological things are actually forms of cooperation taking place at a small scale, but that becomes a kind of collective selfishness. Mm -hmm. And the only solution to that is actually, when you spin that out, and maybe I think you can see it already, uh, is to adopt a whole earth ethic, because that is the top unit. We really have to be planning our actions with the welfare of the whole earth in mind, and, and then coordinating the lower level units. The lower level units don't go away, they're extremely important. And in fact, among the most important of these lower level units is the small group. If we want to talk about a fundamental unit, it's not the individual, it's the small group where individuals work with others and are known by their actions and they do important things together. That is the, is the fundamental unit that we need, to, we need to nurture, basically. Can you tease out this very important idea of multi-level selection? because I think it has enormous explanatory power sure. uh, in human society. Yeah, and then we have been talking about it all along, but yeah. the way I, I communicate it in the briefest possible way is to ask you to imagine playing the game of Monopoly. You've all done that, so, and, and the purpose of that game, of course, is to um, get all the real estate and drive everyone else into bankruptcy, so get yourself in that Monopoly mood. That's, that's a form of competition 
among individuals within a single group. Now imagine that you're playing a Monopoly tournament. There's many games play, being played, and the trophy goes to the team that collectively develops their property the fastest. Okay, so imagine playing that game. And right away, I think you can see that almost every decision you make in a Monopoly tournament is going to be different than the decisions that you would make playing the single game of Monopoly. And so that is the difference between within-group competition, so when evolution is operating at the most local scale among individuals within a single group, that's favoring forms of selfishness that we associate with the single game of monopoly. Just about everything that we recognize as virtue is actually vulnerable to exploitation at this scale of within groups. And Darwin understood that. Darwin said, it's true, the morally virtuous person is not more fit than the more selfish person within a single group. It's only groups of virtuous individuals that are more fit than groups of less virtuous individuals. And of course, that just elevates selfishness up to the group scale. It doesn't eliminate it, it just elevates it. But so there's the fundamental logic of multi-level selection is that um, is this dynamic where lower level selection is resulting in behaviors that are actually disruptive higher up the scale. It is the opposite of the invisible hand. The invisible hand tells us that, that basically the pursuit of self-interest robustly benefits the common good. And what multi-level selection theory tells us is that it's profoundly not the case. That has to be the most toxic idea yeah. that has ever gained prevalence, ever. It's very consilient with the Dalai Lama's book, uh, Beyond Religion, towards an, towards an ethics for the whole world. Interesting. I want to tie what you just said about um, the invisible hand back to economics and our podcast, and, and you know, what we're trying to do in Pitchfork Economics is knock down a lot of the most pernicious ideas of neoclassical economics and neoliberalism. And one of the anchor concepts, the thing upon which all neoclassical economics and neoclassical economic modeling depend upon is the idea of the representative agent, ration, you know, rational man, homo economicus, uh, perfectly selfish, perfectly rational actor. And the reason that that idea is so pernicious is that if you assume that that is true and you embed that idea in the minds of people in the culture, and they look around the world at all the prosperity in it, then they must conclude by definition that it's billions of individual acts of selfishness that magically transubstantiate into the common good and into prosperity. But if you understand the world from an evolutionary perspective, and if you understand human beings as, if, as evolved creatures, and understand them as we, as, as we are, as uh, evolved to be moral, other-regarding, reciprocal, and cooperative, because that's the only way our societies can survive, and if you embed that in the culture and people look around the world at all of the prosperity in it, then you must conclude that it was billions of collective acts of cooperation that generated all of that prosperity. And, and, that, and that it was the invisible hand of reciprocity that generated the, the prosperity around us, not selfishness. And from that, those metaphors and those heuristics and those intuitions, you end up with a very different culture, a different policy framework, and a different politics. And this, you know, the circling back to why 
I think the evolutionary point of view is so important is that if you don't understand the system as uh, evolutionary, you can't get to those insights or perspectives. Yeah, and I mean, it's such a shift. Uh, let me tell a couple of stories from my book that, uh, that nailed this, especially at the scale of small uh, groups. One of my favorite stories from the book is about a colleague, uh, a, a neuroscientist named Jim Cohen at the University of Virginia. And he was seeing an elderly patient, World War II veteran, who was suffering late-onset post-traumatic stress disorder. And the old gentleman was totally resistant to therapy of any kind. He wouldn't do anything that Jim was asking him to do. And finally, he blurts out, I want my wife to come with me. And Jim had never had this request. And when you think of therapy, as always the therapist working with the individual client. There's individualism right there. But this man was saying, I want my wife with me. So Jim said, okay, and his wife came, and at first he treated her like a bystander, and nothing was working any better. And then his wife said, let me hold his hand. So she held his hand, and he opened up the therapy. He actually became more responsive than most of Jim's other clients. And so Jim was amazed, and he embarked upon a set of experiments with just everyday people not suffering from any kind of disorder, in which he'd put them in a brain scanner, an fMRI machine, and he would stress them by threat of electric shock. There'd be electrodes strapped to their ankle, and, and, uh, and, so they, and so this is a very, very stressful situation for them, and now he could see what was going on in their brains. And, uh, and he did this under three conditions, alone, holding the hand of a stranger, or holding the hand of a, a loved one. And holding the hand of a loved one had this tremendous calming effect. And so based on this, Jim, um, developed a theory called social baseline theory, which is, means this. It's the one constant in human evolution. Uh, all of the different regions we live in, all climatic zones, dozens of ecological niches, what's the one constant of human evolution is that we were always living in small, highly cooperative groups. And so that took place so long that our brains evolved to factor in not only their personal resources, but their social resources. The brain actually does not make a distinction. And another set of experiments by a colleague of Jim's uh, illustrates this in graphic detail. So imagine that I take you to the base of a steep hill, and I ask you to estimate its slope. And I ask you to do this under a number of conditions, uh, carrying a heavy backpack or not, having fasted or not, having had a workout or not. And in each of those three cases, we're depleting your personal resources. Now, naturally, when we deplete your personal resources, you should be less inclined to climb the hill, right? But the way the brain processes that is to see the hill as more steep. Okay, that's just the way we are. So that's, that's part of not wanting to climb it, is that actually we estimate its slope as steeper. Now we add a fourth condition, standing alone in front of that hill or standing with a friend. So now what you've done is you've added a, a social resource, not a personal resource. And when you put the friend next to you, let's climb that hill. That hill is flat as can, it can be. So what the brain has done is it doesn't make the distinction. And now when we look at the literature out there that shows you how toxic loneliness is, how it's one of the great epidemics, I mean, the, 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 the fallacy of thinking of the individual as the standalone unit, the rational decision-making and so on, misses that entirely misses the fact that if there's one policy prescription, only one that you could make, it would be to get people in nurturing groups. And it's actually 
not hard. So that so interesting. is interesting. And you know, one of the interesting things you pointed out in the book is that we're always evolving. That in fact, there's a lot of stuff that happens to us in our lives um, uh, that is uh, that, that that is part of evolution. That that the, the eyesight thing, uh, nearsightedness, is an epidemic. I found fascinating. Can you can you speak to that for a minute? Sure. It's um, um, and just to give, provide a little bit of background, uh, when we talk about this toolkit that has been developed by um, uh, in the study of genetic evolution, which carries over to the study of cultural evolution and personal evolution, that toolkit, just to relate it very um, uh, quickly, involves asking four questions for any product of of evolution. Gordon, wherever you are, is going to appreciate this. Um, Yay! <laughs> it's based on the work of Nico Tinberg and one of the pioneers of animal behavior. And he said very simply this, everything that evolves by an evolutionary process has to be addressed in four different ways. First of all, what's its function? How does it contribute to survival and reproduction, if it does? Number two, its history, its phylogeny. Evolution is a historical process. Number three, its mechanism. Its mechanism, everything that evolves has a physical mechanism. and Everything that evolves develops during the lifetime of the organism. So function, history, mechanism, development are these four questions. And that when you employ these four questions for any product of evolution, then you are a fully rounded evolutionist. So you might get that easily. The question is, how do you put it to work? And the example to which you're um, uh, alluding is that uh, it has to do with eye development. Eye development. Why is it that so many of us need glasses? Uh, and that's not the case if you go to human populations that are living closer to a state of nature, then they don't need glasses. The, 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 the frequency of myopia is much, much, much less. It varies from about 3% to over 70% in different cultures, depending upon some factors. So what's going on in these cultures which are causing such a large fraction of the population to have abnormal Eye development, abnormal eye development. Something about the environment has become mismatched, sufficiently different from the ancestral environment so that the development question, the eye developing during the lifetime of the organism becomes, becomes subverted, basically. So what is the abnormal nature of the environment? What could it be? For a long time, people thought that it was a lot of close focus work. So in modern times, we're focusing with reading and all of these things on close objects, perhaps. That's, that's a good hypothesis. As it turns out, it's more likely to be amount of time spent outdoors, that when you're indoors, then the ambient light levels are too low for normal eye development. And so there's a very strong correlation between, between the amount of time someone spends indoors and the frequency of myopia, and that's why this guy doesn't need glasses. <laughs> David and I, and there's a whole bunch of people from around the world that are essentially racing to find an alternative to neoclassical economics and neoliberalism, and, and, but the, and, and the good news is that there is really a shape of that that we can see now, a new model of human behavior, understanding people as evolved to be reciprocal, heuristic, other regarding and cooperative, a systems model that sees it as an ecology, as an evolutionary system, redefining the target of selection from things like GDP, which are simply 
um, it's simply a measure of output independent of creating welfare to some measure of order or what we call solutions to human problems and understanding the processes that drive the evolution of order or solutions to human problems as, as an ecological process, as an evolutionary process that needs to be managed in that way. And all of those ideas, what I have just said, is completely orthogonal to the basic neoclassical economic construct and neoliberalism, but offers, I think, a much better way to understand who we are, how our societies work, and what we should do to get them better organized. So um, anyway, with that, I think we have droned on long enough. Uh, uh, I think we're gonna answer some questions. All right. I'm gonna ask one question while we get situated. Uh, feel free to line up here and uh, bring your questions to the authors, uh, to the author. And so I guess first I wanted to ask, um, why should anyone in this audience care about the, the, the message in this book as it pertains to their own existence? Because uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about economics. Um, uh, can you talk about maybe the toolkit in, in reference to how it, it pertains to everyday life? Yeah, and uh, keep it as quick as possible to entertain as many questions as possible. But at the end of the book, there's a what you can do section. And uh, number one that everyone can do is manage their personal evolution. I think it's so fascinating to think of each and every one of us as an open-ended, evolving system uh, that is uh, in which we can manage our personal evolution. And I'm working with wonderful colleagues uh, in the therapeutic community that are thinking of therapy and training as a managed form of personal evolution. So that's one thing that each and every person can do. Each and every person um, is typically a participant in one or more groups. It might be your family, it might be your business, it might be your church, your neighborhood. Uh, and so everybody can actually learn how to make those groups function better and to manage the evolution of those groups. That's within the grasp of everyone. And then for larger scale things, some people are luckier than others. We have everyone from this gentleman here who's in a position to, uh, to uh, make things happen at a very large scale. Other people, not so much. But, uh, but still, that's a whole banquet of things that, uh, that uh, anyone can do. And these ideas are so versatile that there is not a single thing of importance to your life that couldn't benefit from this kind of uh, uh, analysis. Hi, Nick. <laughs> um, I'm wondering about your optimism around how this common good will work with addressing things like racism, poverty, and gun control. Um, in Seattle, we have a fairly liberal culture around here. We say that we want to do a lot of really good things to eliminate opportunity gaps and everything else. But when it comes right down to it, the evolutionary instinct to preserve all of the resources for your own child minimizes and undermines our opportunity to affect serious change. So I'd love for pro-social world to do some work with Seattle Public Schools and would love to partner with you guys on other issues. But I'm trying to do things and affect change at a local level, but there's a much bigger systems issue that trying to get everybody to shift in that direction feels overwhelming. Yeah, so l let me address that. So, you know, it, it, change and improvement happens slowly and on a continuum. And for, for my own part, I think we can dramatically improve the world, but we're never going to live in a utopia and there's always going to be shitheads everywhere. I, I, don't, I don't think we're ever going to get you know, uh, rid of them. But I do, think, uh, I do think that there is a step function improvement we can make in our society 
if we understand the system that we live in better and uh, understand better the nature of um, ourselves. And I, I just, I, I, so I've been, I've been fighting this fight for a long time, and what has astonished me is that even the people that were theoretically on my side believed all this homoeconomicus nonsense, right? Like the, it, the amount of cultural, academic, and academic headwind that we, fa we have faced to make positive change, uh, like that can be changed. Like I really think that if the world, if the, if, if the universities were not filled with people teaching economic students that homo economicus was real, we're not teaching, the business schools, we're not filled with people teaching business, young business people that uh, the only purpose of the corporation was to reward shareholders. If the nations, uh, if our government was not populated by economists who literally believed that raising wages killed jobs and that people were per, paid um, what they're worth, their marginal product, like if we could knock down all of all of those terrible ideas, if we if we didn't if we looked at the economy as um, as something where we were all connected in it, the better people did over here, the better people did over there. Like we could make a big we could make a bunch of progress. And right now, all all of the academic ideas are arrayed against the kind of progress that you want to you want to see happen. And I think if, again, I think if you can knock down a lot of those bad ideas, we could make quicker. Well, I, know, think that, I think that uh, even then, uh, formidable problems would remain. Yeah. And so I think to be optimistic, I think, is not to be uh, naive about the, uh, the, um, uh, the, basically the wicked problems that need to be uh, uh, solved. But uh, so much depends on on establishing the right um, identities, to take people who basically don't regard themselves as part of the same group and to cause them to uh, see themselves as part of the same group. And for that, I think that there's, that, that is possible, not always easy, but, but, but possible. There's uh, pretty good techniques for doing it, and those techniques work best at the, at the small scale, so that you can get people that currently do not see themselves as part of the same group and common cause, and you can get them to do so. And then you can build up from a micro level, and the micro level is not the individual, it's the small group. And then from there, you can build up to the more macro levels. And so this is exactly what we're trying to do. And the best way to do that is actually to actually get started and do it on the ground, work in real world situations. And so that's what we're trying to do. And if, there's a, if you want to invite us in, then, uh, then uh, that's uh, uh, we'll be there for that. So, thank you. Give me, give us, uh, give us a call. Thank you. Um, so, if you have any uh, other questions, feel free to bring them up to the author. Buy some books from the good people of Alipay Book Company. Uh, thank you to Nick Hanauer. Thank you so much, Professor Wilson, for joining us tonight. And thank thank you. you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you. This event was recorded at Town Hall Seattle as part of the Science Lecture Series. 
To learn more, visit townhallseattle.org. And um, I think we both answered that question moderately well, but upon reflection, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm ever more confident that there's a reason to be, uh, there's a reason to be optimistic. And, and, and that's because we're not that far away from making, from turning the corner, I, I would say. Do, do you agree? True pessimism is when you just don't know the way forward. Yeah. Um, optimism is when you do know the way forward, even if it might be extraordinarily difficult. This is why why we both have an underlying optimism, despite the fact that this is the worst of times. Yeah. Uh, we're one step away from it being the best of times because yes. um, all we need to do, all we need, yeah. is to uh, have an appropriate target of selection, replace um, um, a GNP and faulty targets yes. with, uh, with really the benefit of the whole system, and then design the fitness landscape so that this amazing um, uh, engine of, uh, you might say, a free enterprise is oriented towards hitting that um, uh, target. And there's examples of this already having happened. I think we need to go back in history and realize there's a reason why we call this the second Gilded Age. Let's revisit the first Gilded Age in which um, inequality had reached such a point that um, that uh, really the, the uh, Western societies seem to be on the verge of collapse. Yeah. And it was against the, that background that um, FDR was, was um, elected. And uh, I'm told that when he was elected, uh, someone said, uh, you know, sir, you're going to be either the best president or the worst president. And he said, I'm either going to be the best president or the last president, <laughs> because that's, that's how bad it was. Yeah. So why should our listeners care so much and why should they take the time to understand evolutionary theory? Why is it indispensable to understanding uh, life as a human? So I like to quote uh, Einstein, the most quotable of all scientists, who said, the theory decides what we can observe. Nothing is obvious all by itself. We see everything through the lens of one theory or another. And when you, and that speaks to the, uh, the need for the right theory. With the wrong theory or the wrong worldview, then things make sense that lead us down the wrong path to do things that become part of the problem. What this view of life, evolutionary theory does, is it provides the right theory, and then we can make the wise choices that we need to make. And when you adopt that worldview, then it becomes as intuitive as any other worldview. So I end my book by saying, I look forward to the day when the whole world will be saying, along with Thomas Huxley, how stupid of us not to have thought of that. <laughs> and so uh, I think that's our optimism. It's not that it's easy. No. But it's as if, yes, there's a path. And we can follow that, that path. And, and that can be tremendously motivating, no matter how challenging it is. Then uh, that's the kind of optimism I think that we both share. One of the reasons that I'm very optimistic is that I do think that there's a relatively easy step function in improvement available to us by simply by simply teaching the people that already are on our side why a lot of the worst neoliberal instincts that they continue to cling on to because they're because there's been no alternative are wrong and that in my experience doing this work, what's really struck me is how many of my allies uh, were owned essentially by the ideas 
of my opponents and that and how th those perspectives constrained progress and i think that you know if we can get the word out about some of these ideas uh, sort of collectively it'll be a lot easier to move forward i think that's an important point to end on nick that uh, that this is not actually even a matter of intentions that someone can have the best of intentions but by viewing by having the wrong theory then yeah. They get led astray for that reason. And so some of the most progressive, change-oriented, um, uh, whole-earth-oriented uh, people actually are not part of the solution because they don't have this particular perspective. I, I always want to stress that the, this view of life actually does not slot into any current political position. It's not left, right, center, or libertarian. And for that reason, it can draw upon all of uh, people from all of those positions. Yeah. This is really something new that uh, should be checked out no matter what your current political persuasion. Yeah, I agree. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with Large Media. That's L-A-R-J Media and the Young Turks Network. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action, follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks, and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. And one more, you should definitely follow Nick on Twitter at Nick Hanauer. As always, a big thank you to our guests, and thanks to you for listening from our team at Civic Ventures. Nick Hanauer, Zach Silk, Jasmine Weaver, Jessen Farrell, Stephanie Irvin, David Goldstein, Paul Constant, Stephen Paolini, and Annie Fadley. See you next week. <laughs>